it changed everything. You think that your life is headed in one direction, and then all of a sudden, it gets thrown off. Dealing with loss is a lesson no one ever wants to learn. Conceptually, you can understand that losing a child is going to be awful, but it's not until you collapse and a heap of tears on the floor that you fully experience that. If you're going through that, know that you're not alone. We are now in this brotherhood of suffering, and it absolutely means you do have to advocate for yourself. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sovereign Health Podcast. My name is Andy Schoonover, and we're on a mission to inspire radical personal responsibility for both the financial and physical aspects of your health. We get the joy of hosting thought leaders who are reimagining how healthcare is delivered. I'm excited. Today, we have Dr. Mark Stefani. Dr. Mark is a, an author. He's an internist. He's a hospitalist. His book, Sovereign Health, is one of the best that we've read about the craziness in our healthcare system. You can find it on Amazon and other places on the net. Hey, everybody here. I'm with uh, Dr. Mark Stefani. He's the author of an awesome book called Sovereign Health. Um, Goes into all kinds of incredible personal stories about what's going on in our healthcare system um, and so I, I had an amazing conversation with him a few months back and, and he and I've gotten to, to, to know each other a little bit over the last, uh, what, six or nine months, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Six or nine months. And, um, we've gotten to share a little bit about our, our stories, our love for healthcare, our love for bit Bitcoin. Um, is it love for healthcare or is it this despising healthcare? <laughs> I'm not sure which one it is, but it's our it's love. It's the yin for, and the yang. It's the yin and, and, and the yang. And so we'll talk about healthcare a little bit today. Um, but you know, one of the things that we've kind of, I think we've bonded over, um, I'm not sure if bond is even the right word, but, uh, you know, sh- shared experience that I'd, I'd love to kind of hear from you about given, you know, you are a doctor, you do come from this at a pretty different, different angle than most. Um, you know, both of us have had uh, loss in our, in our lives. Um, you know, back in, let's see, it was 2015. Uh, my wife and I had just gotten married and had a daughter. Um, we found out our 12 week ultrasound that we, our daughter had a condition called anencephaly, which in essence, what that is, is the, the top of that, you probably know better than I do how to explain this, but the, the skull doesn't uh, form properly. And, um, you know, we found out our 12 week ultrasound. She said, they, you know, the doctor said, you know, terminate and try again. And for us, it was one of those where, you know, we were going to give her life in whatever way that, that God wanted that life to, to look. Um, and she ended up passing away about 10 and a half hours after, after she was born. And, you know, that's kind of been an instrumental event in my life. And I kind of joke that her name is Grace. Grace has had a, a bigger impact in 10 and a half hours than I have in my 44 years. Um, and I told you that story and you, you shared a story with, with me as well through some stuff that you and your, your family have gone through. And, and one, I've, I just said the audience know I've asked, um, Mark, if he'd be willing to, to share this and he said he would. So I'd love to hear just kind of your story of, of your family and, and kind of the kind of decisions you guys made through life. And then you decided that you wanted to extend your family. And, and so I'd love to hear your backstory on that. Well, thank you for sharing yours and thank you for uh, saying Grace's name. I think that's incredibly important to acknowledge their 
their life. And, and so thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, it is undoubtedly the, the most impactful event of my life. And the decision to have a second child, we have uh, one daughter now. And for the longest time, I did not want to have a second child. Um, there were several uh, reasons for that. Selfishly, I felt like I wanted to achieve other things in my life and a second child and the, 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 the time, the financial commitment to a second child would push that, um, would make that challenging. Um, but then I started reflecting on that sentiment and, and thinking, well, what? I better achieve those things. And they would also have to be better, uh, more fulfilling than having uh, a second child. But even that realization didn't, didn't sway me. Um, I'm, I'm older. I going through this process. I was 41, 42. Uh, 43 now. Um, and my father was older when he had me and I didn't, it wasn't necessarily the experience as a father son relationship that I wanted. Um, and so I didn't want to be an older dad. Um, and so those, and then, you know, COVID and, um, the, the, the riots here in Minneapolis and, um, some other medical issues and other family uh, issues arose during that time. So it pushed off having a second child for uh, a, a while, but my, my wife still wanted to have one and I continued to think about it constantly. Um, but in fact, it was another Bitcoiner who was the final impetus for me to want to have one. And that was Andrew Bailey. Um, he's a philosopher and has written on Bitcoin and I was on the podcast too. And he was giving his last lecture, uh, this would have been a year plus ago, to his students. And in that lecture, he just said the simple words of that his siblings were the greatest gift that his parents ever gave him. And that was enough to change everything for me. Because I realized that my brother was the, the greatest gift that my parents ever gave me. Mm. And I could not look my daughter in the eye in the future and say that I did not try to give her that gift. And so that was it. And my wife and I started trying. We got pregnant um, 2022 uh, in July. And the um, everything was, was fine. Everything was going great. The ultrasounds looked good. Um, and since my wife was high risk because of age and then my current daughter was born, uh, at, um, 35 and a half weeks, uh, she was deemed high risk, which meant she got a bit more, she got a, a additional ultrasound at, um, 21 weeks. And in that, that ultrasound was December 3rd of 2022. And, or excuse me, the end of November, November 30 or something like that. And everything looked fine, pristine. And we thought, you know, you know this is wonderful. This is great. Um, and how many December, weeks was she at that point? 21. Okay. And then December 3rd, my wife's water broke. And I got a call from her uh, at work. Um, and, you know, it's just like, the, the, the trauma of, of having our 
daughter come early initially, we thought was bad enough. But then, you know, the immediate thought was just, oh God, not again, and went down there. And because um, our daughter was at the age of 20, you know, right between 21 and 22 weeks, she was on this cusp of viability. Um, being in a larger city, you know, we had two institutions, we happened to be at one that could try to resuscitate a child at that age. Um, that was an immediate, you know, um, option. Whereas if we had been in Northern Minnesota or, you know, some other rural town, like it would have been just, uh, the child would have, would have passed. There would have been not an option. And so that, that, that became the, the decisions that we were faced with at that time. And so her water broke, but she did not go into labor, but you're most likely to go into labor within the first week. And so she was admitted to the hospital, um, on December 3rd and we, we just waited, we waited and thought about all the options, talked to dozens of doctors, perinatologists, OBGYNs, um, and got their opinions on, on what to do and, you know, what it would look like if she were born alive and resuscitated measures. And then what that would look like if she'd been in the NICU for months, uh, thereafter, and then what kind of life she would have, um, thereafter, um, you know, high risk for cystic, um, uh, you know, pulmonary problems, neurologic problems and, and all these other. Uh, things to contend with. And so just inundated with all these unknowns, all these unknowns that you cannot quantify, that you cannot really put probabilities on. And I, I remember my wife taking one of the dry erase markers and just filling up all the dry erase boards in our, in our room and on the window, you know, it looks like something out of Goodwill hunting. Uh, riding on the mirror with all these decision trees about where to go and what to do. You know, if, if she were born today, what would we do if she's, if she's, um, you know, is born in a few more weeks, if she makes it past kind of the 25 week mark, which is, is, is kind of a, a more ideal spot, what would we do? And it was, it was a position that I could not have prepared for, that I could not have imagined uh, at all in my life. And so we were in the hospital for four days. She didn't go into labor. December 8th is my daughter's uh, birthday. And we wanted to go uh, be with my daughter for her birthday. And so they let her out. They let us out of the hospital on December 8th to celebrate my daughter's birthday. And my daughter, Celeste, was born on uh, the next day, on December 9th. And I'd like to think that she hung on uh, for those 24 hours so that she could let her sister celebrate birthday. Yeah. And she was stillborn, so she died, you know, going, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, through the birthing process. 
And so the decision was made for us. Um, and, you know, hearing her heartbeat in the few minutes before her, my wife went, went into labor and then subsequently not, you know, was incredibly hard. And then much like you did, we just spent as much time as we could with her. Yeah. Um, her name is Celeste Jacqueline Stefani, and she was born Beautiful. December December 9th, 2022. And yeah, it changed everything. And you think that your life is headed in one direction, and you've got plans and desires and wishes, and then all of a sudden gets thrown off. And there's not a, a, a damn thing you can do about it. Um, and it's been incredibly hard since then, as you can tell, the hardest thing in my life for both me and my wife and my family and everybody. It changes everything. It, you, you, you know, in the months afterwards, you, it's like entering back out into life and everything seems new and foreign again. Um, you don't, at least I didn't want to interact. I, you know, people don't understand the, what you're going through, and they try to be helpful, and that's yeah. understandable. The the uh, sympathies and the, the support, you know, rushes in, you know, immediately, but then disappears, arguably when you need it the most, in the weeks and months later. And, and currently, you know, my wife and I are trying again, but are, are faced with. Um, challenges uh and in that capacity and so we still feel in purgatory where there's we haven't quite been able to move on uh you know with with either not having a second child or or being pregnant we're still like trying to deal with the physical fallout of of the original uh birth so it's been um it's been awful and um you know dealing with loss is is a lesson no one ever wants to learn you know it conceptually you can understand that losing a child is going to be awful but it's not until you collapse in a heap of tears on the floor that you fully experience that and and know what it means and how it's going to shape the rest of your life um but it was very early on for me and i only speak for myself that I only saw three options and that was to either remove myself from this world to or to detach you know mentally emotionally from this world or it was to use this as uh an opportunity for growth to be a better person to be a better father to be a better uh, partner and it was an easy decision for me i could not i could not look at my daughter Celeste and and think that she would want anything else for me or for my family for her family for my wife um that that is the only way that I can see honoring her death what she gave up what she gave up what we could not do for her um um I I I just cannot imagine not trying to honor her yeah. uh, in, in that way. Amen. I mean, you said a couple of times, I think it's 
it changes you. Everything is different. I mean, what do you, can you point to some things that say, yeah, I've, I've this specifically has changed whether my personality or outlook on life or whatever it may be. What are, what are some things that have changed? Yeah, several things. Um, while at this stage in the game, there's still a cloud uh, hanging over us. I, I still try, I, I'm trying to, again, see her in everything that I do. And so that means being more patient. That means being um, more kind. That means being more empathetic to people and their suffering. We, we are in, we are now in this brotherhood of suffering or sisterhood of suffering mm -hmm. and loss. And again, I see no other way of, of dealing with that than trying to ease others burden. And so, you know, since her, her death in the hospital, I feel like I'm much more present with my patients and I, and I, I want to listen to them and their suffering and their story because that's ultimately i think what's most important to people it's not necessarily the the, the antibiotics that i'm going to give them or you know other management it, it's listening to their story it's listening to their pain that they are in and acknowledging that and acknowledging their 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 humanity and so i try to be i'm trying to be better at that um additionally uh, it's it's made me want to double down on my desire to create something incredible and special. And for me, that dovetails with my desire to get <laughs> to to help prevent people from seeing me in the hospital. To I don't want to say fix medical care because that's not what I want to do. I want to prevent people from seeing it, seeing needing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. From needing the system that failed my wife and I, which is another layer of tragedy in this whole experience, which is worth mentioning because it it is an exclamation point to our whole overall discussion about um, the healthcare system. I'm a physician. My wife is intelligent. She's smarter than I am. And yet we could not navigate, navigate this health system well enough to, to potentially have prevented the death of our daughter. And when my wife first chose to, um, her OBGYN, she needed to find a new one because of her health insurance was different for this child, uh, than it was for our, our, our daughter. Um, um, and so she she needed an OBGYN. She also wanted to have um, care with a, a midwife. But as it turns out, uh, unbeknownst to us, if you wanted to get midwife care, you get sh um, shuttled over just to midwife care, and you're off basically OBGYN care for the uh, majority of your your prenatal care. And so. Um, that's what happened to my wife. Uh, she did have a preset perinatal visit. And during that perinatal visit, the perinatologist told my wife that she needed to be on uh, estrogen therapy to help reduce the risk of um, premature birth because she was at high risk for that, again, because of age and prematurity in my, my daughter's prior experience. And those recommendations from that perinatologist 
went back to the original nurse practitioner who had shuttled her off to a midwife and were never received. The midwife either did or did not see the recommendations, but either way said that my wife did not need this therapy. Somehow her recommendation trumped the perinatologist. And so fast forward to 21 week ultrasound, that perinatologist is looking at me and she looks, she says, you've been on estrogen therapy, correct? And, and we said, no. Um, and the perinatologist looked at me and as, a, as physicians do looking at each other when we know that something's awry. And I was just like, you know, fuck, um, mm, man. And, and so the use of that reduces the risk of premature birth um, in the situation by 20 or 30%. I talked to two medical malpractice attorneys following the death of my daughter and they, one of them, where they both said that, you know, that's not enough to sway a jury. But then the one said to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, what the hospital's attorneys will tell, will say you did not do was advocate enough for yourself. I was oh, fucking geez. livid. And she was just saying that as, as objectively as possible, that that's the claim that they would lie at us, that I should have advocated more for my daughter. And I wrote a very pointed, um, letter to the powers that be within uh, my healthcare uh, system that I work for, you know, explaining everything. And when the dust settled and they did a, a, a um, you know, look back on everything, they acknowledged that they made a mistake. But that's a mistake, you know, that, you know, are dollars and cents to them, but is, a, is the potential loss of uh, my daughter to me. And so I know your anger towards healthcare. I know how frustrated you are towards all of it. And it absolutely means you do have to advocate for yourself, but sometimes that's not even enough. And so the only solution that you have, at least when it comes to chronic disease, is to prevent the need uh, for it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like oftentimes we are sent on a mission as a result of, of painful experiences. Um, yeah. and it feels like you're, you're on a mission to change, change healthcare in many ways. One, because you've seen it firsthand in both the practitioner side, as well as the patient side. Um, you know, for me, it, it is, was one of those things where, we were actually loved incredibly well by the practitioners. The doctors loved us extremely well. Um, the nurses loved us extremely well. My, my daughter was born on May 21st. And so every May 21st, we go back and we go back to that hospital, go back to that hospital room. We bring the nurses, you know, treats and things like that, just to say, thank you so well. Thank you so much for how well you loved us, um, you know, and then there's this disconnect to me, it feels like. There's this disconnect between the people who are caring for you on a daily basis or, a, you know, when you're in the hospital or people like you, like 
incredibly great people. Like you guys are underpaid and overwhelmed by what you, you all have to do. And so it takes an incredible person from my perspective, I'm the son of a nurse. So maybe I have just a heart for folks who are in the hospital who are caring for those individuals, but there's a disconnect between those people. And then this just huge layer of bureaucracy and administration that seems to rule the roost, right? That makes all the rules who, you know, creates this craziness that has impacted you. And and many people have heard this, the crowd health story and how we got, you know, screwed by my, my little one. Um, not the one who passed away. I've had, uh, I've been blessed with two, two little girls since, but why, why is that disconnect? And I, I, I don't want to maybe, and, and it's hard not to go to intent, but what is it from your perspective as a doctor who's in the hospital every day? What, what, what is going on here? Like, why are we getting our system being overrun with administrators? And I'm an MBA, I'm not a doctor, but MBAs. <laughs> We're taking the power out of the hands of the nurses and the doctors and putting them in the, in the, in the hands of MBAs who shouldn't have that power. What is going on here? Like, what, why is this happening? I want to first acknowledge uh, the incredible care that my wife and I did get in in the hospital um, during the you know almost week long stay that we were there. In the the nurses in the physicians that we had gave us the time, gave us the 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 love that we needed, and I'm incredibly grateful for them. And that's a wonderful idea uh, to return. Um, and I I will tell my wife that we need to do that uh, this December. Where is the disconnect? It's, it's, it's carrying individuals within a system that does not optimize for that. The, the medical system that we experience optimizes for throughput. And that's how, uh, in, in procedures and that that's how they get paid. You can imagine the, the only way to, to think about how what the problems are now is is to think about an alternative system whereby um, under a different reality right and what I see that as strictly as 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 as, as medical care not necessarily um, lifestyle interventions but that system would be one where the this what we call shared decision making which is this idea of when a patient comes to a, a care provider a physician with an issue that the the healthcare professional presents the information the data the the um, recommendations and then meets the, the person where they at are at in their needs and you come up with a shared decision making to move forward in that that verbiage has been around for decades but again, is not practice because it takes time and it takes close relationships um, that are readily accessible. And that is not how the system currently operates. You want to be able to talk to your provider, you know, without having to jump through uh, phone trees. You want to be able to get an appointment mm -hmm. when you need it, not in six months. And so it, it's it's carrying individuals who then butt up against a system that does not optimize for that it's a disassociation between again customer service 
and then medicine as a, a product in optimizing for the product. And that's, that's the, your, the patient is the product in the, in, in the, our current reality. They're not the customer, they're the product. And so as many of those products yeah. that we can sell and push them through, the better off it is for the, the shareholders. Yeah. I mean, I, I posted a tweet, I think a couple of weeks ago that basically said, you work for who pays you. You know, and the doctors, the hospitals ultimately are paid by insurance companies far and away by insurance companies. And therefore they have to satisfy the needs of insurance companies um, to get paid or else they're just not gonna be able to get paid. You know, the the bills will not get paid if the insurance companies don't pay them. And so therefore, if your insurance company is your number one stakeholder, then it's not the patient, you know, and, and I think it'd be hard to argue that the patient shouldn't be the primary stakeholder if they're suffering from something, whether it be the loss of a child or a heart issue or whatever it may be, like that person should be your customer, you know, but our system is not built on a direct to consumer model, right? The, you don't, this, this organization doesn't have the same ramification if they treat you poorly that the local restaurant would because the patient's not paying you. It's the insurance right. company that's paying right. you, right? And so that ultimately is why we at like Crowd Health are like, look, this should be between the doctor and the patient, the nurse and the patient, whoever it may be. It should be the member paying the doctor, paying the nurse, whoever it may be. Um, because that creates an incentive system for caring and empathy and all the things that you and I have needed through through some of this, you know, very tough thing. Um, and that's where I think we can change this system in a big way if we can figure out a way to change the the payment system. You know, I also put a tweet up on, and I'm sure you've seen this chart too, where since 1970, the number of doctors have gone up marginally. Yet you know, the, the number of administrators go vertical. I mean, yeah. it, it is one of the create, it's, it's one of those graphs that you look at and you're like, there's no way this is even possible. Like, how can this be possible? Fake news, yeah. yep. you know, yep. but it's, but it's, it's the, that bureaucracy is all those administrators and all the costs of those administrators that I really think has turned healthcare on its head over the last 50 years. Yeah. And that's funny that, that graph has, has, I've seen, uh, as wallpapers on many of computer <laughs> over the years and the doctors <laughs> in the doctor's lounge, you know, for the administration to see. So, yeah. And again, it's all about, you know, profit extraction and it's, I, you know, honestly, I, I have no idea how, you know, the business of healthcare like is profitable <laughs> anymore, like where there is, uh, alpha, so to speak, in, in in any of it, because it all seems so uh, insanely, um, yeah, uh, clogged, bureaucratic, and positions that, that you're. Why does this even exist? Why why can't we do this more efficiently? And that's the problem: is that you have caring individuals with good ideas, and then they butt up against this Goliath of of uh systems and bureaucracy that are just simply not designed to 
to accommodate those types of ideas. You know, every year as a part of our bonus structure, we have to come up with some quality care incentives. And I kid you not, we achieve them only for that thing to that that initiative to die the next year. Like <laughs> it, it goes nowhere. It's just a check box, right? And it's just it's so infuriating. And for many of us, you you feel apathetic to it that you can't change anything um, because you can't. And that's you know much like you know Bitcoin's mission. You have if you want something to change, you have to build uh, without outside the, the the system. And um, I, I don't see healthcare changing to any great degree within uh, its current structure. And it's 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 why companies like yours that I think are are the ultimate disruptors in it all. Yeah. You know, we, we, this, the story you told, the story I've been able to tell, it, it humanizes healthcare in many ways. Um, you know, we, we kind of have this saying at Crowd Health, you know, fun humans, not health insurance. <laughs> yeah. We, we had a, a situation of, I don't know, it was maybe four or five months ago where we had a, a, a family similar to yours that had a, um, I think earlier on in their, their pregnancy, a miscarriage, you know, and the way that we operate is we actually let our members know that, Hey, this is a family who needs help because with bills, you know, related to a miscarriage. And I think we sent that one out to a hundred people or something like that. And we had people come back and say, I've gone through that. I know what that family is feeling. Like, can I, can I give more to them? Like, I know that you asked for 50 bucks, but can I give a hundred bucks to that family? Because I want to help them. Right. Um, and, and so to, to me, it's like, how do we build a system where it's back to where it was a hundred years ago, where, you know, if Mark is going through this really traumatic experience, like the community truly like rallies around that person to, to love them well, <laughs> You know, and it's just hard to do in the digital world that we live in. But if I know that I'm helping, it's Mark or Andy or whoever, you know, specifically, as opposed to putting it in this black hole of insurance bureaucracy, I think there's a humanization there that is really powerful and impactful. Um, yeah. And we need to yeah. go back to that. Like, I, I feel like it. You know, the insurance companies and the government, I feel like, oh, no, we got this. Like, let us take care of this. And it separates me me the patient from you the doctor and there's there's just that's where i have problems with this whole this whole system well for for millennia for centuries that's all physicians had yeah was was their their comfort in their time in their word and um because there were no beneficial therapeutics you know it, it wasn't until I, I think you can draw a, a direct line between, you know, the advent of more uh, beneficial ther therapeutics, you know, over the course of the past century, and how that has in turn um, removed that empathetic element of the physician and replaced it with um, with mechanisms and ones and zeros, and you know, coupled on top of you know this very reductive. Um, approach to medicine of finding the single cause for x y or z disease and we got to keep testing 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 to try to figure it out and more and more medications to try to to treat it we've lost that 
that empathetic touch, which arguably has as much to do with healing as any medication that I can prescribe. Mm -hmm. We simply don't have the time, training, desire um, to do that anymore. Uh, I, I still firmly believe that I can I can be empathetic and and as gracious and beneficial in in the few minutes that I may have with somebody, um, and I need to honor that. But still, it's not the ideal. And you know, you, you can only expect the uh, the results. Uh, the system that's that's currently in place is is how it is the the system is designed to get the results that it. That it gets right, and and so I don't see that uh, changing. Yeah, I mean it, it. It really is. There's a a biblical saying that says, "For the love of money is the root of all evil." <laughs> um, you know, and it is certainly that case within the healthcare system. You know, from from my perspective, because everything I've read in my history of healthcare the local doc wasn't doing this for the big bucks. Well, I think you can have both if you design a system as such, but we've had so many layers upon layers upon layers of, of, of ultimately uh, infrastructure that it's not beneficial to the end product. Because again, if it were, uh, we wouldn't be having this uh, crisis of, of chronic disease that we're facing in the U S and we'd have better uh, numbers to, to support it um, compared to other um, developed nations, and, and we we don't. So clearly, we're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. And um, I just think that if if you're able to, I, I don't think it's necessarily money. And I, I, I kind of disagree with that that no, quote. It's like, go. what do you want? What do you what do you want to do? With that money, it's much like the 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 the, cr- the critiques that are lobbed at Bitcoiners that we're just in it for for profit. It's like that is an element of of anybody's desire to have more Bitcoin or money, mm-hmm. but it's ultimately what is driving. That's not going to get you very far. Ultimately, what do you want to do with that Bitcoin? What do we, what do you want to do with that money? It, it's the same line of thinking that. I tell people when they want to improve their health, they want to better themselves. The first question you should ask yourself is, why do you want to make more money? Why do you want to be healthier? Why do you want to better yourself? And until you can answer that, you know, you're never going to have enough money or you're not likely to make sustainable uh, changes in your health that are, that are lifelong. Yeah. And I, and I think from, from my perspective, my, you know, for the love money comment was much more focused on, the way the government has enabled health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies to reap the rewards of a fairly awful system. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying this is about the doctors. Um, you know, the doctors, there's a million doctors. They make on average 300 grand. That's 300 billion. Our system is about 4.3 trillion. So add benefits onto that. It's, somewhere between eight, around 8% plus or minus a percent. So it, that, and I, and I first heard that and I was like, that is almost impossible. How can only 8% of our dollars that we're spending on healthcare are actually going to the doctors who are treating us? 
it just doesn't make any sense to me, you know, yeah. but those are the numbers. And, the, you know? and we're always the, the, the first ones to get the, the, the pay cut, which I know when no one's going to sympathize for, and that's understandable. Um, but we're, we're the easiest to, uh, cut, uh, our, our, our budget and our benefits and so forth. And like, it's almost inevitable. And I, I told this to our C-suite, uh, several months ago, it's like, we only represent 8% of the total spend. There's, there's, there's a, there's a diminishing returns there for your bottom line. If you want to keep cutting, uh, our salaries, like it's going to butt up against people just quitting. Right. And so you've got to be able to be a little bit more creative. If you're doing what every other hospital system is doing around you, how can you expect to make any better Mm -hmm. profits or results? So I turned it around to them and I said, start engaging with physicians um, in the way that you would necessarily, you know, some of the the number crunchers in the MBAs, like we know where the waste is. We know where um, we might be spending or ordering tests that probably don't really need to be uh, ordered and, and, and things like that. And so start engaging with us with regard to um, um, profit maximization, cost uh, reduction, because again, that's never, as far as I'm aware, ever been done. And so bringing us to the seat of the table, I think is maybe one of the only steps that could potentially reduce some of the the cost to uh, the, the hospital systems and doesn't necessarily speak to the insurance companies. But that that suggestion just, again, kind of falls on deaf ears because it's mm-hmm. so far out of uh the current model of of thinking and you're left with again you know some spreadsheet somewhere in the corporate headquarters of oh you know we'll take the eight percent down to seven percent this year and we'll we'll cut some of the pennywise pound foolish is what they what they say well mark as we kind of wrap up here you know you've gone through some incredibly difficult things over the last six months is there any advice that you'd have for people who have loved ones in their lives that are going through what you and your family are going through? Um, I think you kind of mentioned like everybody wants to help. Um, a lot of times they don't know how to help. <laughs> what is the best way for for somebody to help you know a, a family like like yours as you're going through really hard stuff? The realization that so many people have gone through this that don't talk about it. And for me, it was really the understanding that there's, there's a a whole spectrum of trauma that, that families, women experience from, you know, miscarriages to the loss of the child, you know, at term and thereafter. And all of those, all of those are traumatic and hard. And and especially with Mm -hmm. earlier term miscarriages, we just kind of brush them off as, uh, you know, it's likely to happen, you know, in pregnancies, but those are really fucking hard still. Yeah. That's a loss of a child. And the loss of my own really made me recognize that. And so if you're going through that, know that you're not alone. Um, it feels that way. And you're going to, your friends and family aren't going to understand if you have trusted individuals, friends or family who are there for you, 
you know, double down on that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my experience, it's just, it's something that people can't wrap their heads around yeah. and therefore aren't able to meet you where you are at in your pain and your suffering. And I've had to give up being mad at them for that. Um, I don't want them to take on my pain or suffering. Um, I would like them to be there for me more than they have been. Um, but I understand that they're not. And so my, it's okay to also seek out uh, professional help in organizations. There are many of them and, um, you definitely need that third party to be able to talk to, because if you just do it with your partner, it is incredibly, uh, challenging. Yeah. And, um, I think trying to find some way to honor the loss of your, your child in whatever way that that's most meaningful for, for you, um, for my wife and I, that's still something that we're, we're coming to terms with. Um, I'm writing, I, I write a lot to my daughter who's alive, uh, about this experience and about her sister. Um, and for me, that's been comforting to be able to help her. I, my hope is that it's, you know, this is not only something that's beneficial for me, uh, but it's, will be something beneficial for her in the coming years when she's older. Uh, and that's been very cathartic. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it's your burden to bear and it will be for the rest of your life. You know, my wife and I were sitting in her hospital bed, um, just watching TV. Uh, we had a lot of time to, to think because there's nothing going on. She wasn't going into labor and the Lord of the Rings was on and the the line about you know frodo not wanting to bear the ring of the of a burden of the ring and that it's mm-hmm. too much um and then you know come to realize that you know he is the ring bearer and it is his burden to bear and if if you don't no one else will um and my wife and i just looked at each other and it's just like that's what it felt like that mm-hmm. that this is our ring. We were chosen. And I don't mean that in, in, in any other capacity than a terrible experience. And this is, this is our future and we must bear this burden and we must do so with, with bravery, um, and, and compassion. And, um, and so that's how I see it. Like it's nothing, that I can hide from. It's nothing that I can put under the rug or, um, be ashamed of. It's going to be here on my chest, uh, as a golden ring that I will forever, um, carry. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, uh, ability as much as I don't want it. Yeah. And so, um, one step in front of another, um, one day after another. And, um, I think to the extent that you can take your pain and try to 
empathize with somebody else who's in pain and relieve their burden has the reciprocal effect of easing yours. And so that's yeah. what I would suggest uh, for others going through this. I just add that if there are friends of people going through this, um, give your friends who are going through this some grace. <laughs> they may not be very good friends for a little bit. And it's not because they don't love you. It's because they're just going through a brutal thing at the moment. So give them grace. Yeah. Um, I remember me and my wife doing some just dumb things to friends, you know, being pissed at them for saying silly things or whatever, but it's just, you are emotionally so torn apart that it is just brokenness that comes to the surface oftentimes. And so just give your friends, if they're going through a miscarriage or whatever they're going through, you know, especially when it's dealing with our kids, just some grace around that. Um, you know, and, and people who are going through this, I would just say, you know, my wife, Mark, sounds like you and your wife as well. It's, it's okay to reach out to people who are professionals at dealing with loss. You know, this is nothing to be ashamed of. If you want to go talk to, you know, a, a trauma specialist, a loss therapist, a whoever it is. And I especially, you know, as guys, it's hard for us to to do that sometimes to kind of surrender some of those emotions to somebody that you don't know very well. And I was like, man, it was the best thing that I did. It was the best thing that my wife did. You know, we did it together. We did it separately. And I think that was a key piece of the healing process. Um, because I think one of the th really important things that you said and what our therapist has said is like, this is with you forever. You know, this is not something that disappears. It is a part of who you are for the rest of your being. And so what are you going to make of that? You know? Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, give, give these folks going through this stuff, some, some grace. I'll tell you the, the most difficult thing in the world. And, you know, hopefully this can hit somebody is we had to hand our daughters over to a nurse, never to see them again. You know, we knew that we were never going to see our daughters again. You know, and if you have kids and can recognize that that's what our families had to do, you know, that's, that is just the power of like losing a child. Um, and so my thoughts, my prayers are with everybody out there who've lost children. Um, my, I'm on Twitter. If you want to DM me, um, you know, and want to talk, like I'm happy to do that. I know Mark well enough that I'm sure he'd be willing to talk to people, you know, as well. And, you know, just kind of full transparency here. Mark and I started our podcast talking about how broken healthcare was. And I said, you know what, dude, like they can hear this from a million different places. There aren't a lot of places with, you know, a couple guys who've, you know, lost their kids talk about how hard and difficult that is and, and how the system treated them through that. So brother, I appreciate your willingness to, open up, um, be vulnerable about that. I'm hoping somebody's going to listen to this and it's going to impact them. Either they're going through it or they might go through it or, or they're having a friend who's going through it. And so, um, willingness for your, for you to do that. Cause I stopped the podcast. I was like, Mark, would you be willing to talk about this? And he agreed. So I, I appreciate it, brother. It's, I, I think this is going to be, um, going to hit somebody that, that really needs it. Um, so thank you for your willingness to do that. Absolutely. And thank you for 
um, asking me, you know, as hard as it is to talk about, it's one way of honoring Celeste. And, and so I'm, I'm more than happy to do that, to know that her name will live on through this, uh, as well as Grace's. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. Where, where can we find you? Oh, one other one, Sovereign Health. It's an awesome book. Um, we want you to go and read it. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, right? That's where I, I think yep. you sent me mine. Um, so I feel special, but, um, you can get it on Amazon and, and, and other places. And so go out and get it. You know, what Mark is a 150 pages, something like that plus or yeah. minus. Yep. It's a quick read. It's 150 pages. You can get through it in a couple sittings. And I, I don't know if there is a better, more kind of concise place to go, you know, hear or, or read what's going on. What's loony tunes about our healthcare system. And as I told Mark in the first half of our thing that we now have probably deleted, um, <laughs> that, you know, a lot of people can say it in 500 words, but he would did it really, really effectively in 150 or excuse me, 500 pages. You did it really effectively in you know, 150 pages. And so sovereign health is the book, um, go out and read it. And then where, where can they find you? I'm on, on Twitter, uh, Mark. Uh, MN underscore local. And I'm also at Sound Lifestyle Medicine. It's a new um, virtual lifestyle medicine practice that my colleague and I have uh, started up where we provide uh, lifestyle medicine services for uh, clients interested in making some of these changes to their health habits and to avoid seeing me in the hospital. And so we offer, um, you know, an intensive kind of uh, program where we go through all these lifestyle um, factors, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, and how to optimize those for uh, a healthier life. And we also offer consultations. And awesome. currently we're just offered in uh, Colorado, Minnesota, Wisconsin, but uh, actively getting licenses in Texas and Illinois. And we'll have some courses out awesome. here soon. So again, sound lifestyle medicine can be contacted there as well. So, and I also want to um, um, second your statement about uh, reaching out to, uh, if you if you're going through something like this, please, email or DM, be happy to, to talk about it because that's ultimately one of the best, best ways of, of handling it. Dr. Mark Stefani, thanks, brother. Thank you. This was wonderful. Talk to you soon.